Aloha, and welcome to The Word of Hope with Ralph Moore, pastor of Hope Chapel, Kaneohe. Today, Pastor Ralph brings a message entitled, Faith That Reflects God. And now, here's Pastor Ralph. In Genesis, the 17th chapter, Genesis chapter 17, and uh, the series is called Faith That Keeps On Growing. And I, I, I want to say this over and over again, your faith needs to grow. If you've plateaued, well then you really are not realizing God's complete plan and His will for your life. God wants to keep the trust that you have between you and Him growing. Not a a religious thing, but a, a spiritual experience of friendship. That you begin to know Him well enough that you know how far you can go with Him. And you know how far He will go with you. As we talk today, we're going to talk about faith that reflects God. The Bible says, that teaches us that we are made... Uh, to glorify God. And you go, well, what does that mean? To all act religious all the time? No. We're made so that our life would reflect His goodness, much as the moon reflects the light of the sun. So that people would see you, and they would see a reflection of God in you, and that your life would be transformed. This is a good thing for us to know, because it lets us know for sure that God wants to answer our prayers, and that God wants to take the things we've all messed up, and make them right, and, and do something positive and good with our life. And so... We're talking about faith that, as we grow in it, reflects God's goodness and God's glory. Now, the background to the story today is is what we actually talked about last week. We're actually in a series going through the book of Genesis, looking at the life of this one man named uh, Abram. And later on today, we're going to read it. God changes his name to Abraham. We'll get into that. But uh, he he is held up as the role model of faith. And and, and so, in other words, if you want to have faith, be like this guy. And, And yet, last week, we looked at him messing up big time. God had promised to bless him in, in these ways. Abram had, had not had a child. And he was getting old. He's 75 years old. And he lives in a culture where it's important for a million reasons to have a kid. One is you want somebody to help you with the labor in the, in the farm business, you know. Uh, another is that you want somebody to carry the family name. Another is you, you got wealthy, you want to give it to somebody and you'd like it to be your own family. But another reason is that all of your neighbors think there's something really wrong with you. Uh, there's evil in your soul if you can't have children. The gods are mad at you. And so Abram, is, his name, Abram, means exalted father. And so his whole life, he's called exalted father. He probably was the firstborn in his family, and everybody was hoping he'd carry on the family name. And his whole life, he's called exalted father, and it's become a joke because he has no kid. And so the Lord appears to him, it says, and tells him, I'm going to bless you if you'll trust me. Leave behind what you've been trusting, your father's gods, the idols. And come out of even your father's household. Come into a new land. I'm going to give you the place. But not only will I give you the place, I'm going to give you a son. And through that son, I'm going to give you a whole nation of people. Now, boil that all down. Here's what it says to you and me. What's the deepest need in your life? Because God will meet that need, and he'll go beyond meeting that need, and he'll go so far beyond meeting that need that there's a surplus in your life that can bless other people. That's the way God wants our lives to work. And so, Abram takes off, trusts the Lord, all these good things happen. But as we read the text last week, ten years had gone by since God first made the promise, and he has no child. And so, his wife, her name is uh, Sarai, she comes to him and she says, I have an idea. I think that we can help God out here. And because he's having a hard time doing the thing he said he was going to do. And she says, I have this servant girl. And you could read that word slave because that's really what it means. And this was a time when slavery was extant in the world. And she says, I have this slave girl and you have sex with her. And then I can have a child through her. 
Now, again, I just want to always point out how ugly that is. Here's this person, we'll use her, and then I can have a child, and you can have a child, and God can be satisfied. And, you know, that has nothing to do with faith, everything to do with uh, fear. It's not going to work, so we've got to jump in there and, and make it happen. And, and at, at least he gives her the dignity. He marries the woman, and so he has now two wives. He's a polygamist. Again, that was something they practiced in th- that time of the world. Nobody would think twice about that, but certainly it's not faith operating. Well, there's a baby born. Uh, causes all kind of conflict between him and Sarai because now the other girl has kind of got leg up on Sarai. I could have a kid, and you can't, and you know this whole thing goes around, and and uh, so there's a, there's a lot of conflict in the household, and and then what's noticeable is that for the next 13 years God is silent. In chapter the end of chapter 16 it says Abram was 86 years old when the son was born. Chapter 17 starts out saying when he's 99 years old the Lord appeared to him. Now here's what I think I get from that. When you and I take matters into our own hand and we take over the role God wanted to have in our life, God is gentleman enough to step back and say, okay, if you're driving, you sit in the front seat and I'll sit in the back seat. The goal to your life is to have God sit behind the steering wheel and you sit in the back seat and let him show for you where he's trying to take you. Am I making sense? That works. When you're the chauffeur and he's along for the ride, it doesn't work so well. And so God is silent for 13 years in Abraham's life. Now he's 99 years old. Plenty of time to, to do what you and I do, and that's moan and groan and mope and feel bad and sorry for ourselves. And uh, this isn't working. I'm never going to hear from God again. I really, it's my fault. I know. I blew it. I screwed up. Uh, it's over. All, all that's in front of me that I can see is all there is left to life. In other words, I have no hope. See, when God is driving, you, you, you have a sense of, it's, it's going to get better. Who knows what's going to happen, but I know it's going to get better. When I'm in charge, it's like, well, this is, this is it, and I've got to make the best of it. And so in the midst of all of that, uh, we come to this place where we see God as Almighty. In verse 1, it says, Abram was 99 years old, and the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Serve me faithfully and live a blameless life. Now, I hope you have a pen out because I want to give you some things to write in your Bible here. And this verse could be a message all by itself. We could talk for the next five minutes and go home. Someday I'm going to actually do that. I'll surprise the heck out of you guys. You know, ten minutes in, I'm done, you're out of here, and you're going to go, but today I'm not going to let you off that easy. Um, It says, Abraham was 99 years old. The Lord appeared to him. Now, a vision or what, we don't know, but it's not like he just hears that little voice in his mind. Some weird supernatural thing happens. And he says, I am God Almighty. Now, if you could read it in Hebrew, he uses a different name to describe himself than he did any other time in Abram's life. And, and the word God is the word El. That the Hebrew word El is the word for God. And the word for Almighty is Shaddai. So he says, I am El Shaddai. Well, what's that mean? El is God. Shaddai is power. I am God power. What's that mean? It basically means I am the God of all power, all ability, all strength. Now, contextualize this. Fourteen years ago, you and your little girlfriend got together to help me out because you didn't think I could do the job. And I haven't talked to you ever since. I'm back. And I want you to know I got the ability to do the thing you didn't think I could do. You get it? God wants to show up and tell us when we've capitulated to fear that he's capable of doing what it is that we need done in our life. And now he says to him something important. He says, 
uh, serve me faithfully, and live a blameless life. Now, that sounds so religious and so rule-oriented and so, you blew it, that, that it's really hard for me. But when you go in the original language, what it really would say, and you ought to write this in your Bible, is walk with me and become complete. Walk with me and become complete. What a difference. Serve me and live a blameless life. In other words, you keep the rules. No, that's a bad translation. Walk with me and grow to completion. Faith that keeps on growing. Faith that somehow satisfies you down deep inside. Faith that comes to a place between you and God. You're in such concert that your prayers are being answered and the things that you and I need are happening. Think about this. Jesus, you know why they killed Jesus? And Jesus comes to us, the Son of God, miraculous birth, does all these miracles. Everybody around knew that this was a person that came from God. His enemies even said that. They recognized that he brought Lazarus from the dead. In fact, that's the day that they finally made the decision, we've got to kill this guy because he's getting in our way. But you know what the conflict was over? Rules. Religion. Jesus attacked the religious leaders continually because they're putting big heavy burdens on people in terms of rules that everybody had to satisfy. And, and God is into relationship. God doesn't come to you and say, accept me as the leader of your life and I'll keep the rules. What he comes to say is, accept me as the leader of your life, walk with me and I'll make you complete. And then what happens as a result of that? Well, you don't need to do the stupid things anymore. A person who gets caught up in drugs and alcohol is, is trying to satisfy an emotional vacuum in their life. The Bible says, be being filled with the Holy Spirit. And it actually literally is saying, be drunk with the Holy Spirit. It says, the, the verse is, don't be drunk with wine or get loaded on drugs either, I suppose. Instead, be being drunk with the Spirit. Singing to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Something happens when we learn to bring personally bring worship into our life. We start to get drunk on the Holy Spirit and there's something that's, that's of, a, of, a, of a cavity in our life that gets satisfied with the grace of God. Think of the person that you know that's into greed. You know, the, if, if you read through the Bible carefully, and you go, like, go to Proverbs, read all the scriptures about money. There's tons of them in there. God wants you to make a profit in your business. God wants you to, to be blessed financially. The Bible says, the blessing of the Lord makes rich and he adds no sorrow to it. Let, God wants things to work well for you financially. But what he doesn't want is greed. And you can have success without having greed. You know what greed is all about? Greed is about, I'm going to get so many possessions that my neighbors have to envy me. What's that saying? I'm a weak, empty little person who doesn't feel loved, and I, I'm going to lord it over these people. Walk with me and become complete. I'm an angry person who tries to control everybody around me. Well, what happened? I'm afraid. And so I've learned to dominate the situation so nobody sees how weak and empty I am. Walk with me and become complete, the Lord says. And so rules never really enter into this. When you're walking in the Spirit, you tend to... Live a life that reflects God's goodness inside of you, and all of that gets worn away from your life. Does that make sense? And the key to it, Jeff said something about this this morning, is it really to this whole thing, is, is coming to know God through the Scriptures. The Bible really says that this is a book that is inspired by God. God inspired these people to write certain things. There were millions of stories that could have been told from Old Testament days. God chose the ones that would give us the pathway to relationship with Him. And as we get into this, we, we learn how to walk with God and we learn how to walk in completion and completeness in our life. But He says, I am El Shaddai. I am Almighty, the God of all power. In other words, 
What do you need? I can do it for you. You don't need to do a Hagar routine like, like, like Abram did. What you really need to do is learn to walk in the, in the Lord and walk in the Spirit. And His grace is going to be yours and it will satisfy you. Are you with me? Well, let's go on to verse 2. God says, I am always. In other words, I won't forsake you. I won't let you down. Um, verse 2. I will make a covenant with you. The word covenant means I will make a contract you with you by which I will guarantee to make you into a mighty nation. At this, Abram fell down in the dust, probably as, as a sign, much like you'd see Muslims praying with their, fa- their forehead on the ground. Abram falls down to honor God and to worship Him. And God said to him, This is my contract with you. I will make you the father of not just one nation, but a multitude of nations. And then get this. What's more, I am changing your name. It will no longer be Abram. Now you'll be known as Abraham, for you'll be the father of many nations. I will give you millions of descendants who will represent many nations. Kings will be among them. I will continue this everlasting contract between us, generation after generation. It will continue between me and your offspring forever. And I will, underline this, always be your God. I will always be your God and the God of your descendants after you. God's making a promise. I will be with you. I'll stick with you. Now, again, put it in the context. Abram thinks that God forsook him because he knows he messed up. God's strangely silent for a good long time, but he comes back and says, I never left. I'm with you, and I'll always be with you. And the message to you and I is, you know, sometimes we feel guilty. We do something that we know is wrong, and then we come back and we feel like we can't pray. We can't talk to God. We can't approach Him because He's mad at us, and He's gone. No, I'll always be there. I never change. You know, whatever, I'm still there. I'm faithful, and, and you can count on me. But I want you to, to see this thing. The, the two things that you have to see in this part are that the part about a contract. And the contract, basically, God tells Abram, I'm going to do the blessing. It's really a contract that holds me responsible to bless you. I'm going to give you all this offspring, this and that. But then notice it says he's changing his name. It'll no longer be Abram. Now you'll be known as Abraham. The name Abram means exalted father, and it had become a joke. And God says, now I'm going to change your name to be a, a name that means uh, God of a multitude, or I mean father of a multitude. And n- n- now, at this point, he still has the son through Hagar, but he doesn't have the child through his wife Sarai that God promised to give to him. So the promise hasn't been fulfilled, but the name change happens prior to the physical change. Does that make sense? And if you go to to throughout pretty much Asia and the East, there's a practice that people have. They'll change their name when something changes in their life. Oftentimes it's reflective of something that happened. Now, this isn't something that somebody would actually do, but this will illustrate it. Remember the Archie comics? Okay. I, I, do, I do really well in the stock market, or I go play the ponies, and I hit it really good, and I, I make a lot of money. And so I changed my name from Ralph to Richie. Remember Richie Rich? Okay. It's, it's like that. You change your name to something that's descriptive of who you have become. Or, more importantly, and most often, they'll change their name to reflect what they want to become. A, a name that has meaning. One of my friends in, in Japan, it, up till about 20 years ago, very often Christians would do this in Japan. They become converted, and so they, take, they choose the name of somebody in the Bible. And now they actually go to their workplace... They're a Japanese person living in, in Japan. Everybody speaks Japanese. And then they go and they have a, an English name. And they would, because names don't translate. You know, name stays the name when it, wherever it goes. One of my friends, his name is Seta. But he changed his name to David. 
Because he wants, he admires what he sees in the life of David in the Bible. He wants to become like that. So by faith he's saying, God, make a David out of me. And people will change their name. I, I was with my friend on the phone the other day with my friend Paul Risser, the guy that spoke here in last December, a big funny guy from Tennessee. And uh, he told me about, he was in India not too long ago. He's the president of our denomination. And he was visiting churches in India. And he met uh, two, two young girls who were twins. And they had accepted the Lord. And they changed their names to, to goodness and mercy. Remember the 23rd Psalm says, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. So wherever their mom went, goodness and mercy were following her. But... Uh, God says here to Abram, I'm going to, this is the target. This is what I'm going to make you into. And so I'm going to name you that before I fulfill the promise in your life. Interesting, the scriptures say in, in Revelation that every one of us, when we become a Christian, God has given us a new name. But no man knows the name, not even you. But God does. So it's like God has figured out where he wants to take you and what kind of a person, what he wants to do with your character and how he wants to change you. And as we go through the rest of today, we're going to see that often these names uh, do re- reflect what, almost the opposite of what we used to be and what we're going to be. God's trying to take the deficit in your life and make something very good out of it. And there's hope in that for me. Is this good? Yes. We'll go to the next part here. I call this God is the master or the God is the covenant master because uh, he, he, he makes this contract or this covenant with Abram. And if you'll notice, God is the one who lays out the terms. He didn't negotiate terms. God says, here is the contract and now you sign it. God is in control. God wants to be in a driver's seat of our life. And, and it, it says here, your part of the agreement, God told Abraham, now he changes his name, is to obey the terms of the covenant. You and all your descendants have this continual responsibility. And this is the covenant that you and your descendants must keep. It's very simple. Each male among you must be circumcised. The flesh of his foreskin must be cut off and this will be a sign that you and they have accepted this covenant. Every male child must be circumcised on the eighth day after his birth. This applies not only to members of your family, but also to servants born in your household, foreign-born servants whom you have purchased. All must be circumcised. Underline those words. All must be circumcised. Your bodies will thus bear the mark of my everlasting covenant. And anyone who refuses to be circumcised will be cut off from the covenant family. They'll still be in the family but they won't be in the covenant family or they won't be a, a part of the contract with God and Abraham because they violated the covenant. Now, does everybody know what circumcision is? Well, I, can, I can tell you what circumcision is. It's painful. Now, once again, we sit in church and act like we're a little bit ignorant of some things. You should have been there Friday night, you know. I have this crowd... On Friday night, everybody's single, they're all young, and anything that has to do with sex, they all act like... <laughs> I might have heard that word once before, but I, I, I'm not sure if I know what that means. And You're just like them here, you know? Circumcision is... Ugh, circumcision. And God says that everybody that's going to be a part of this covenant of His has to be circumcised. Well, not any longer. The Bible says in the New Testament that we're free from that. But take a look at this scripture here. I want you to think about what is circumcision and why did God do this to these people? And the New Testament, the Apostle Paul writes, and he says, talking about Abraham, that he received the sign, that's an important word, of circumcision as a seal, and that's the word we're going to look at, of the righteousness of the faith which he had yet 
being uncircumcised. In other words, the faith that Abram had before he was circumcised was sort of signified in this act of circumcision. You'll notice that comes, it says KJV, that comes from the King James Version of the Bible, which was translated 400 years ago in 1615. A king named James paid for the translation of the Bible. Uh, first time it was ever translated into English officially. Uh, the thing about the King James is it's a little bit old-fashioned. English language changes. Well, that's why you have phrases like, which he had yet being uncircumcised. Uh, grammar has changed. But the other thing about the King James is it's very accurate. In fact, it's a better translation of Romans 4.11 than you're carrying in your Bible here. It, it says he received the sign. What's the sign? Well, it's, it's an action that says, I agree to something. It's a symbolic action. And then it uses the word, a seal of the righteousness which comes from faith. Well, what is all this, this seal business? Well, did you ever go to a notary public to have something signed? And they have that little seal thing that they crimp into the paper? What does that say? Well, that makes this official. It's agreed upon. All parties agree. Suppose that you went out to buy a house and, and uh, you negotiated the price and, and you went to the mortgage company and you negotiated a loan. And the escrow guys did all the million things that they have to do to get all this together. And then when it came to the day to finalize the purchase of the house, you went in and you sat down in the room and you said, um, that's great, I agree with everything, uh, but I just don't want to sign it. So nobody could put the seal on it. You didn't do your half, they couldn't do their half. Uh, all, all that you had on paper would amount to nothing more than wishful thinking if you were unwilling to sign the thing. Does that make sense to you? Well, I mean, what's the signature? It's just a little blob of ink on a piece of paper. It means nothing. No, what it is, is I'm sealing the deal. I'm doing my part of acknowledging that I embrace this thing. Now, if you notice the contract between God and, and Abraham, God says, I'm going to do all the work. I'm going to make all the miracle part happen. What you have to do is sign off on the thing. And the way that you have to sign off is through circumcision and through your whole family history, everybody else that comes along that wants to be a part of this agreement has to also sign off. And then it says, and those who don't, don't get to be a part of the thing that we're doing here. Does that, does that compute? You, you, you get it? And so this, this, this symbolic act, now we live in a society that largely rejects symbolic acts. Up until September the 11th, American flag was like, oh, that's for old fuddy-duddies. Now you see everybody wearing little pins on. They've got flags all over their house. Anything that has to do with tradition or symbolism uh, in, in our society, we've kind of scrapped it. It's, it's not a very meaningful thing. I remember during the 1970s, everybody would say, oh, we're living together, we're not married. And, and marriage, what's that? It's just a piece of paper. No, it's a seal. You've, em, you've embraced one another. And what we found out now is those relationships where you just live together end up in failure most of the time. And three weeks ago, they came out with some big survey that says if you live together as a trial run for marriage, you've almost certainly doomed yourself to divorce once you do get married. So these symbolic acts turn out to be, not just in the Bible, but in terms of, of psychology and sociology, hugely important. You've got to sign the deal. And God says to Abraham, I'll do the work, but you've got to sign. You've got to embrace. You've got to admit. It's not enough to just know stuff about God. You've got to come to a place where you engage Him and you embrace His promise. Are you following this with me? Well, let's go on further. And we're going to come back to the circumcision thing in just a minute. But come further with me through this. In verse 15, it says, Then God added, Regarding Sarai, your wife, her name will no longer be Sarai, but from now on you will call her Sarah, and I will bless her, 
and give you a son from her. Yes, I will bless her richly, and she will become the mother of many nations. Kings will be among her descendants. Now, what is God saying here is, I'm not just blessing you, Abram. I'm blessing the people around you. We're going to read some more of this kind of blessing here. And that's true of us. God wants to bless us. He wants to bless people around. It was Sarai that he had planned to bear the child that would give him the nation of people. The trouble is, she's an old lady. She's like 89 years old when God says this. So we're dealing with miracle time here. And, uh, but notice the name change. There's this thing of reflecting God. You know what Sarai means? The dominator. <laughs> I mean, think about it. Every time the guy thinks about his wife, he's thinking about the dominator. You've been listening to The Word of Hope with Ralph Moore, pastor of Hope Chapel Kaneohe.